Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. So, Eves, good to have you with us today. I want to welcome you and everyone else to the uh, Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. And uh, we're excited to uh, have a special guest here. He's Joseph, um, someone I've known for a long time, someone we've been talking about getting together for a long time, uh, even at Augusta and, and other places. And uh, looks like, you know, it, it is what it is, but finally we made it happen. Greetings, man. Joel, it's a, it's a privilege and a blessing to be with you, man. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, very happy to have you here today. So, um, Eves, as you know, we uh, we talk a little bit about um, commercial real estate uh, on this podcast and uh, really just trying to highlight the excellencies of minorities in the commercial real estate space and what they've been able to accomplish and kind of put that on display for, you know, the next generation coming up, you know, to see examples of, of what of what's possible. You can't strive for excellence if you've never seen it, right? So yeah. you got to have um, got to have something there to take a look at. So, Eves, you know, obviously we've um, worked on one of your most recent projects together. So, you know, we know what you do. But why don't you give us a little background as to uh, how you got started in real estate development in the first place? Yeah, well, that's a very long story, Joel. Okay. I can probably use up all your time. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, man. So I won't go back to the to the very beginning. But, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the current the current format of our operation, you know, my business partner, Jason Rundick, and myself established RJ Development in 2017. Prior to that, you know, Jason and I were executives at a, um, you know, pretty high-performing commercial development company active throughout New England. So we essentially spun out in 17 and started our own group. You know, it's not been a, a straightforward path to, to get to where we where we are and you know we're kind of really proud of where we are and where we think we are going certainly where we where we want to go but um you know we we are you know active in you know a lot of property types we did a hotel transaction in 19 you know Joel you're talking about our our new London project 203 multi units about a 50 million dollar deal in New London Connecticut that's under construction currently mm-hmm. and you know we have a series of other multifamily deals you know <laughs> anywhere between 30 and call it 50, $60 million each, uh, as well as kind of some mixed use stuff. And it's been, you know, we, we think we've been organized about how we structured our business. And we can kind of get into that if, if you're interested, but it's, it's not been without, you know, a lot of sacrifice and effort and, and time to get here. You know, it's always good when you see that excavator locate on site and start moving that big dirt and start, yeah. you know, setting setting putting some foundations that's kind of like for me the litmus test litmus test of a, of a deal getting really off the ground yeah no very very good point very good point you know i think it would be good for our audience to talk a little bit about the structure because uh you know running a business and running one successfully is is really two different things you know anybody can you know form an llc but actually yeah. being able to create a business that that runs and is operational and has successes is important so since you opened the door, let's talk about that a little bit. What, what, how have you guys been able to structure your business to uh, enjoy the success that you've had? Yeah, I mean, it's an important question, right? And I think for full disclosure and transparency, 
neither neither Jason or I came from wealth, right? I mean, look, we 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 did all right. Our parents helped us get through school and you know good education and so forth. So I'm not going to say we started from the bottom or we're you know completely bootstrapped, but we didn't have a million or several millions of dollars at the bank to start what is really required to do you know commercial real estate on your balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And so we were very kind of transparent and we tried to be strategic about, again, how we structured our, our business. And so we, we really thought of it as, as two verticals. One vertical is what we call the advisory services practice, where we are kind of fee for service, right? We'll find non-developer landowners or other strategic institutional clients who are building or, or substantially rehabilitate real estate assets. We will run those operations on their behalf for fees. And so what that did for us is it created a bit of a cash machine, right? And a bit of an ability to reliably generate cash flow to support our worlds, right? Because again, we're not independently wealthy where we don't have bills, you know, mortgages and families and so forth. And so that has to be serviced. And so the advisory service business was really kind of a way to do that while we really invested our energy, our efforts, and our, our discretionary income, our capital, building the, the balance sheet development platform. And so, you know, I said we started in 17, and there was probably several years where we didn't have any income coming in from real estate owned. And so we used that advisory practice to, to really build the infrastructure of our office, right, to, 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 to pay for our office building, for example, um, to hire our, 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 our staff team. For example, candidly to, in some cases, create equity, seed equity to fund pre-development, pre-spend soft costs. Mm-hmm. And obviously we would supplement that with our own resources. But I just think it's important to kind of be transparent about that because real estate is an extremely capital intensive business and having some type of you know synergistic cash generating activity, I think is vital, particularly at the early stages for folks who just don't come from, you know, a large amount of, of wealth where you have, you know, so much liquidity and so much capital availability, you don't have to think about day-to-day cash flow. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because one of the things that we always try to highlight is, is how do you get from here to there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, we're doing this $50 million project with 200 units. Okay, but how, how'd, you, how'd you do it, right? I mean, how do you go from... A to B. And to your point, you know, I think one of the things that holds a lot of people back is they look at the amount of capital that's needed to get a deal done. And it's like, where am I going to go to to get $20 million? You know, where am I going to get $5 million for earnest money? Where am I going to, you know, and and so they just give up, you know, but you brought up a a very important point of being able to create partnerships with people that are landowners that are non-developers and being able to run those projects, being able to provide an advisory service you know, which generates the cash flow, which, which obviously, you know, in a lot of cases could give you sweat equity to get in the deals and, and possibly opportunities down the road. You know, leveraging an owner's land for development is your equity is always a, a viable way to get started in a project, you know, if, if we're being fully transparent. I know you know that. Yeah, you know, we've never done a deal like that, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Um, we have tried, you know, we certainly have had conversations about structuring joint ventures with owners and having the owner's land kind of contribute as equity, it's never really materialized. And I just find those those transactions are really difficult. I, I think a lot of owners do actually understand value 
And to the extent owners don't understand value, my experience is they overinflate their perspective, their perception of their own value. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes a barrier to getting a deal, a deal done. So we we kind of we kind of move away from that aspect of a joint venture. Although I do know folks who've been successful there. It's not a place we we emphasize. But one space that's been very helpful to us in kind of building our business has been public-private partnerships. And, you know, this is not a secret sauce. This is very well known. This is very widely known. If you go to any major market and even non-major markets around the country, you have, you know, folks, minorities who are working on public-private partnerships. And and that's been a place and a source of, of opportunity for us because it's allowed us to get into real estate at kind of lower basis, if, if that makes sense, which kind of becomes wealth generation for us, uh, but also allows us utilize that land to kind of make up some of the way towards the equity uh, that's needed. I mean, you're going to have to have a lot of cash, but you know, if you could find a way into into land at a lower basis, you have an opportunity potentially to step that up and have that have that count towards equity, uh, which yeah. helps kind of bridge the gap. But the one other thing on the capital side, Joel, that I think is important is the bank prop, the bank piece. You know, Actually, if you don't mind, but before we go to that, because I, I want to highlight something that you just mentioned and, and make sure that our audience understands that. What exactly is a public-private partnership uh, for those who may not be familiar with what that exactly means? Yeah, so public-private partnership, is it's, it's, it's exactly how it sounds, mm-hmm. right? You have a public entity and a private entity that come together to achieve an objective, a development project objective. And so in the ones that we're involved with, the public entity has been, in our experience, either a municipality, Mm -hmm. a city or a town, or a state. We haven't graduated to doing anything at the federal level yet, although certainly I know folks who are doing public-private partnerships that involve the federal government. And so those agencies, those public agencies are the public piece and our entity, in conjunction with you know other actors that we might assemble, become a private entity that work to deliver an objective on behalf of the of the municipality. And so, you know, in real estate, just to kind of make it plain, because that's like a lot of circuitous talk, a city or a town may have a piece of land that's underutilized. Perhaps it's a vacant piece of property. Perhaps it's a surface parking lot, and they have a strategic plan to develop that deal in a very specific way. Uh, perhaps it's to achieve uh, an affordable housing objective. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's to uh, achieve a housing objective that may be not affordable. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's to achieve a commercial objective, i.e. bringing in a hotel to service a major user, a major uh, employment generator. Uh, perhaps it's an office building to bring in a tech user. But the bottom line is there's municipal land, there's a municipal strategy, but the city or the town is not in the business of developing ground. Right. And so they'll identify a private partner to say, hey, look, this is what we want to do. We're not going to give you much latitude in what's to be done here because we want our land developed in a specific way. But we will entrust you with the responsibility to deliver. And to the extent you could do that profitably, God bless you. And so we have been able to kind of go around and solicit those municipalities who cannot execute on their own behalf and we become execution for them. And so typically it does contemplate us owning the fee simple interest in the ground and then going vertical with the building. Okay. All right. Fantastic. And sometimes you don't own the, the land, especially on federal sites, yeah. but, um, but the same principle comes into play. 
as to how you can work that out. So, uh, yeah, very interesting. And I appreciate you clarifying that because that kind of walked through the whole process as to how it happens. Now, you were going to talk about uh, banks, and I, I wanted to talk about that as well as what you've been able to do successfully in working with universities from that standpoint. I believe you've had some success there. So which one of those topics do you think you want to kind of go into a little bit first? Yeah, I, I want to clarify the university piece. I mean, we've certainly worked around universities, but I, I'm not sure that we've worked for a university yet, um, although we do have things that we're kind of cooking up. So I'm, I, I'm curious about kind of what that string has if we were to pull it. But on the, but on the bank side, you know, the, the piece for me that, that I just think is worth kind of clarifying and, and shining a light on is mm-hmm. that it's a real bear. Right. And it's not, it's not, it's, you know, not to be kind of profound or something there's anything profound about that statement that, you know, accessing large amounts of a recourse debt or even non-recourse debt is, is difficult for emerging development companies. For us, it was the hardest list, right? We actually had our, our equity raised on our first sizable ground up project in the new platform before, well before the debt, a year before the debt, we had the, we had the equity committed. Now the equity was committed contingent upon our ability to secure debt at favorable terms. Mm-hmm. But the debt, the, the equity was in, the debt was much more difficult. And, you know, the, the only reason that we were able to get over the hump, the only reason that we were able to kind of get out of the starting blocks is because of relationship. And so I know relationship is like an overused word, but I, I think it's not used enough as much as it's overused. I think it's that central to success and, and kind of ability. It got to the point where, we actually had a bank that stepped up, a regional bank that stepped up and provided us with a loan, a very attractive terms, you know, as good or better than what we, we could have expected. And, you know, the reason was because we had known them for 15 years and we had done deals with them for 15 years under a different platform. Mm-hmm. And so they knew us as individuals. They knew our capabilities. They knew our performance kind of without us having to sell and basically traded on, on that relationship. What's our takeaway? What's our take? Because you bring up a very powerful point. Well, what's our takeaway from that experience that you had? I mean, my, my takeaway for folks is, is to be very strategic about the relationships you build mm-hmm. and don't, don't ever burn bridges. But you, you could be cultivating a relationship today in 2021 that may not meaningfully return for you until 2031. And and it's not to say that you go into every relationship trying to be extractive or with a mentality of, you know, what is in it for me. But I think it's just being aware that the interactions that you're having with folks today are going to impact your ability to have future interactions with those folks 10 years from now. I never would have expected and I didn't put the pressure on the relationship 10 years ago that this was going to be the bank that allowed my company to get off the ground. But it is what happened. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and furthermore, you know, when it comes to ground up construction, new deals, typically they're very stringent sponsor guarantor requirements. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, you got to have huge balance, huge liquidity. And so, again, to the extent for us, our bank was able to say, look, you know, we understand how you're doing. Let's work with you to help you be successful. And so um, relationship, relationship, relationship. Some say location, location, location. I'm going to say relationship, relationship, relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, I, I hear you. I hear you. You know, and that's, that's very interesting because, um, you know, even for myself over the years, there's been organizations and clubs and things like this that, you know, I've been part of. And, you know, you step back and you say, OK, what am I really getting out of this? Right. And you kind of think there's no value there. But then 10, 15 years down the road, you might need something. They might need something. And, you know, some kind of way you, you just kind of come back together. So it's an amazing thing. And, and even, um, you know, people that you think might not bring any value today might bring value down the road because you don't know how they're going to grow and progress in their business and their portfolio and what they do. And um, I don't know if you know uh, Dennis Pemberton. He was one of our guests uh, a little while ago. You know, he had mentioned about pretty much the same point about relationships and how a lot of these people, they'll work at some, you know, fund or whatever the case might be, and then they'll get promoted and they'll get another job at some other group. And then they'll get another job at another group. And <clears throat> over time, you know, you they're in a position now where they could really help you where when you first met them, they couldn't really do anything. They may have just been an analyst or something like that. So, yeah. you know, so yeah, keeping those relationships is extremely important. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. And for, and for me, it, you know, it's got to come from a real place, right? Right. I mean, right. there's networking and to me, like and networking is not bad, mm-hmm. but to me, networking and relationship building are kind of two very different things, right? Relationships are built through kind of time and, mm-hmm. and, and sincerity and, and energy and, and trust, right? It really comes down to trust. And so you have to really invest, right? Yeah. You have to you have to invest yourself authentically uh, and sincerely in order for that to manifest, right? We, we've, so, so you know, I, I guess I'm just saying it's not to me transactional, right? It's right, not right. you shook somebody's hand, you took a business card and boom, I got a relationship. It's no, I mean, I've literally known these people for 10 years and uh, was at this person's wedding or what have you. And that, those are the relationships that, that translate. Yeah, especially in the money business. Yeah, yeah, you you've absolutely got to have those over time. So that's a good point. You know, just not going into relationships with uh, what am I going to get out of it, and and having that focus, but just keeping in touch with folks is, is very very important. So I appreciate that. One thing I, I wanted to circle around to as well, and we kind of laughed about this when we were talking on the phone earlier, was about development, and um, I was telling you about this uh, platform that that we're building related to. Uh, being able to take some of the guesswork out of development. And uh, I wanted to go a little bit into that and clarify what, what I was bringing out there that, you know, from looking at it from a lender standpoint, you know, cause I've always been on the finance side, most of my career, you know, we look at it as these are projections and we hope they work out. From a development standpoint, you're looking at it from the stand, and I'm gonna let you address this, but looking at it from the standpoint of, I know I can mitigate my risk a lot by knowing exactly where the market is as it relates to this, knowing what the increases have been in the marketplace, knowing what the actual cost is, you know, if you're able to get a GMP contract on certain things, whatever the case is, you could take a lot of that guesswork out of it. So I kind of wanted to um, go down that road a little bit and, and talk about that in a little bit more detail. You said that this was something that uh, you certainly wanted to kind of dive into a little bit. Um, and, and that is uh, the guesswork in development. You know, how do you as a developer take the guesswork out of development so you are pretty, you know, feeling that you're standing on solid ground, solid footing? Yeah, no, thank you, Joel, for, for raising <laughs> I, I was definitely teasing you because, uh, you know, look, man, we signed personal guarantees on, on large loans, man. I hope we're not guessing. Um, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, no, I definitely take 
and it's tongue in cheek, right? I mean, I take exception to the term guesswork with full appreciation and understanding of of your intent and kind of what you're trying to communicate. You know, certainly when, whenever you're doing an, an effort of a projection, you are looking into the future, trying to kind of understand or, you know, imagine what will occur in the future, which cannot be known, kind of almost by definition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the question becomes, are we guessing at that future or are we using, are we informing our perception of that future with kind of a thoughtful assessment of what is happening around us now, a thoughtful assessment of what has happened in the past to create kind of a, you know, a reliable and a reliable framework around how we're going to think about um, imagining imagining the future. And so, you know, a lot of this stuff is not rocket science. I mean, folks, you know, there's data that you can analyze. I mean, you can see what, you know, your peers are doing in the region. But I think, you know, a a non-trivial aspect of any type of forecasting exercise and kind of thinking about, again, this this future state that you're trying to craft is is intuition experience. Mm -hmm. You know, have have you seen environments that are similar to the one you're trying to imagine um, so that you can extrapolate and utilize data points that maybe you cannot quantify, but they're, they're data points that inform what we call like an intuition or kind of a gut feel. I mean, to me, a good intuition or a good gut feel is really just taking thousands, if not more, hundreds of thousands or, or more data points that you can't quantify, but they're in your almost subconscious through your experience with other similar environments throughout your career. And you bring the full weight of those experiences to how you evaluate a question that might be before you. And so I just think guess the word guesswork lets us off the hook mm-hmm. for the opportunities there are to leverage experience, to leverage data, and to leverage other resources that are available to create a more reliable, more robust vision of a future that you're effectively betting on. The other aspect of it in terms of the way we think about it, and now I'm kind of talking about underwriting and kind of how we underwrite deals or how I underwrite deals, is I always underwrite the most conservative deal that I could get funded. And I, and, I, and maybe that's meaningless. Maybe that's, that's those words don't mean anything to folks. Uh, but, but to me, they, they mean a lot because mm-hmm. I've seen folks underwrite the most aggressive scenario they can justify, which to me is very different than underwriting the most conservative scenario that I can fund. Yeah, it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it, this is kind of a principle that, that, that I have. And I always find myself fighting with either co-GP equity and not so much LP equity, but you know, if it's, if it's co-GP equity, there's always a conversation about Let's make this pro forma look more attractive because it makes it easier to attract the capital from the LPs. And I say, well, God bless you, but it's my butt that has to deliver the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So why, why do I stress myself so far to a scenario that I cannot deliver? I cannot reliably deliver upon right. for a probabilistic failure or at least a less than less than optimal outcome. Mm-hmm. And so. I just think that as folks think about putting their deals together, present the most conservative outcome that you can get funded because then the rest is upside and you're much more likely to beat your underwriting 
than you are to miss your underwriting. And that makes it much easier for you to fund your next deal with the same sponsor group. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very valid point. And, and what's interesting, and, and like you said, this is why we were kind of laughing about this when we were talking about it, because everything that you described is what we're talking about, you know, being able to create these data points as to, to give us the answers that we need. And the question is, do you spend a lifetime building that knowledge or can you use artificial intelligence to learn it now? and to, to benefit from that now. And so we're trying to look ahead to the future and say, okay, what exactly can be done by means of technology to bring those data points together so I don't have to go back in my memory bank and say, okay, what happened there? How did that happen? Or I have to pull up a whole bunch of spreadsheets in order to, to have that. So that's, that's kind of where we are with that. And, and, but you brought up the point because that's really what it all is. It's all about data points you know, from that standpoint and pulling that information together. So, um, so, so if, well, go ahead, you, you had a response to that. You yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't really know much about artificial intelligence. I mean, I'd like to invest in it. If that ever became, <laughs> if you have any good opportunities, you know, we, we definitely would love to write some checks on what we, we do agree and believe is a, is a vanguard industry. But I don't I don't understand it. Right. So I can't sit here and speak intelligently about what are and what are not reasonable expectations of AI. You know, I kind of mentioned when I was talking about how we forecast that I, I believe that intuition is a non-trivial aspect of you know successful mm-hmm. business modeling and forecasting. And I think the human intuition is an extremely strong and, and powerful model if mm-hmm. used correctly. Um, even though it, it's not it's not necessarily something that you can present in a PowerPoints PowerPoint deck. You know, a lot of very successful you know entrepreneurs and, and business minds rely heavily on their instinct, and I, and I instinct is exactly that. It's it's the cobbling together of probably millions of data points acquired mm-hmm. in a lifetime to inform decision making. Can artificial intelligence substitute for strong and reliable intuition? I couldn't give you the faintest. I hope the answer is not, because if it can, then my job, then that's basically competition for people like me. And I think it's part of the value that, that I add. But but certainly, you know, around the edges, I think AI can and already is making it easier to kind of analyze a readily available data to form decision making. But does it involve the aspect of intuition, which is kind of that, that human contribution? I don't know. That's probably above my pay grade. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about it is you, you can't take away intuition. I mean, that's that's a, a powerful thing. It's, it's almost like um, looking up at the night sky and then trying to capture that with a camera. It just isn't the same, you know, on, on your cell phone. Right. It's it's never going to be the same as seeing it with the naked eye. So uh, it's kind of the same thing here. You can't take away intuition. And I will argue that um, you should always look for opportunities where you can work with people who have those years of experience and maybe partner with them on deals in order to uh, learn that for yourself. So as you get 10 and 20, 30 years under your belt, you have that own, you know, intuition from that standpoint. So, you know, that's certainly something to work toward. But let me ask this, let's take the word guess out of it. If there was an area in your underwriting that presented the greatest degree of variability, what would you say that is where you would, like to have some type of technology if it was available to answer those questions for you or to bring in that, bring that broadness a little bit more narrow in your um, evaluation. 
Yeah, you know, and this is, I'm guessing you're asking this kind of shaded by the discussion around artificial intelligence. You know, the, the, you can pick any any number in a model and, and, and do this, right? So I don't know that one is greater than, than another. I mean, revenue modeling, revenue forecasting and multi is an example, but I already know people are already applying AI to to that, right? It's simply just extrapolating what's happening with, with employment, what's happening with population growth, what's happening with uh, comparable properties and demand plan and proposed pipeline, and just taking all those data points, put it in a soup and kind of spit out you know, mm-hmm. forecast for your particular particular deal. I mean, I, I think AI probably could do that pretty successfully, would be my guess. But one place where I haven't seen it, and maybe it's just because I'm not privy or just unaware, is in cost, costing, right? Really understanding real time and anticipating what is going to happen with the cost to deliver a project in a low locality. And so this has everything to do with you know, the availability of subcontractors, um, the competitiveness of those subcontractors, what's happening with material pricing, uh, inflation or deflation, and how does that relate to how we're building up a comprehensive cost model to deliver uh, a new construction project. I haven't seen as much technology in that space as I would expect. My experience is you have extremely capable extremely experienced individuals and teams of individuals that are doing hand-to-hand combat in the field, taking drawings, testing them against subcontractors, getting competitive bids, compiling a you know hundred sheet spreadsheet that spits out the number that it will require to deliver that deal. And then you know three, four, five weeks later, that number is immediately stale because the markets are evolving and changing so rapidly, you know, particularly in the last year with what we saw in stick and, and well, really it's, a, it's across the supply chain, but you can focus on wood and things that are built out of timber with, you know, lumber going up to $1,800 a board foot down to 600 and where it started at like 300 and change. Mm-hmm. So trying to manage through that and understand the implications for, for the deal that you're trying to deliver in real time in my experience, my observation, it's been it's been a labor intensive process driven by people, and perhaps there is an opportunity to bring technology to that. Yeah, appreciate you sharing that. That's a very valid point. You know, you look at the buildings you've done, and even bigger buildings. We had this issue in Midtown Atlanta, where um, there were so many projects that were in the hopper to be developed, and then the recession hit. You know. But, but it takes so many years to get those projects out the ground. How many changes can take place in, a, in an economic cycle uh, while you're trying to just get all your numbers together, uh, which is kind of to the point that you're making. So uh, I'm not going to go any deeper on that, but it's a, it's a very interesting subject. And, um, you know, my, my antenna is up as it relates to what can be done in order to make that easier for, uh, for you and me, because, you know, I'm, I'm in this, this space as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's risk, right? And, you know, you do, you talk about particularly the way we, we do, you know, because I've been built GMAX with the third party CM. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're basically doing an arm wrestle of who gets to take that risk on and who gets, I guess, paid for it if you if you measure it correctly and who gets yeah. burned if you don't. I mean, AI has an opportunity to substantially de risk that aspect of the transaction, I think. Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. 
So one thing I wanted to do, generally at um, about 30 to 40 minutes into the discussion, we open it up for our guests to uh, answer any questions that they may have. So we're going to do that now. Uh, if you have any questions, just put those in the uh, chat box and we'll be happy to address those and, and bring them to, uh, to Eve's attention. So we appreciate that. So while we're waiting on those, uh, actually, I'm going to unpin you so we can see our guests as well. I wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned about working around universities and, uh, and things of that sort. And I know that uh, you've done some development uh, around Yale up there. And, uh, you know, I always like to get things for the, from the horse's mouth. We have a mutual friend, as you know. You know, he's told me some things, but I don't know if that's all accurate. So what, what have you been able to do? Uh, you said you haven't really done much with universities, but have kind of worked uh, around them and in their space or sites that are controlled by them. Is that the case? Yeah, yeah. No, we have not done work for the university, but we've done a lot around the university. Okay. And so, you know, I think certainly we have benefited from the, the, the might of the economic driver of the demand generator that the university and the hospital systems are. And, you know, it's ultimately become a core piece of our business strategy broadly is really identifying major demand generators that are going to be extremely reliable and have, you know, multi-century horizons and develop to support the needs that are generated by you know, the weight of that economic activity, because for us, it, it's a stabilizing force and it, it takes a lot of volatility out of the thought process in terms of, you know, how is my revenue going to be provided over time by whom and what is what are the economic underpinnings to support that, that revenue? And so that the universities are just really straightforward, obvious candidates because there's so much physical infrastructure in place to support universities like a Yale that they're not moving, right? They're not relocating. And so if what you're doing is supported either directly or even tangentially by that operation, it's likely to be extremely sustainable over a very long period of time, which allows development to do well. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of been our nexus with the university. It's not been a direct relationship, but indirectly it's been a very important relationship. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's helpful. No, it is. It is. Because oftentimes uh, universities could be difficult to work with because uh, they have a different way of thinking. But you brought up a valid point that universities don't move. You know, they once they're there, they're there. Right. And, universities, uh, hospitals, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, they don't just pick up and go. Right. They don't relocate, really. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's a very powerful point. So if you're able to um, to develop around those you should be the benefactor. Uh, yeah, and you put that, you juxtapose that against, you know, large corporations, which do not, right? right? Right, I mean, Connecticut particularly has seen a lot of our major corporations leave for mm -hmm. places like Boston. And so you may have the biggest and baddest Class A asset next to, I don't know, GE, for example, and you think that you're good to go and that, you know, you're credit adjacent credit tenant adjacent, but if they pick up and leave, you're left with what? Um, and it has happened to folks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I just think you, you know, for us trying to think through folks that have massive capital investment that are not really going anywhere mm -hmm. and trying to do as much as you can near them. Yeah, yeah. Very good point. Very good point. I've seen that happen in the marketplace uh, here as well, where, where that can certainly happen. 
Uh, we got uh, Uriah here. Uriah is generally here every week, so we appreciate him being with us today. Uh, Uriah, you want to mute yourself and ask your question or? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Absolutely. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for hosting this event today. Earlier, you were speaking about when you're doing your underwriting and balancing between providing conservative figures versus not as compared to providing numbers that make the deals look much, much more attractive. Um, and or in some cases, maybe the, the numbers are a bit more extreme to, to make the under, underwriting process look that much more attractive. So how do you balance between the two in terms of doing your underwriting process, leveraging numbers, assumptions, et cetera, that are more conservative versus numbers that you believe could really make the deal much more attractive? How do you maintain that balance? Yeah, it's a great question, right? For, for me, the way I think of it, 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 it comes down to understanding your competition, right? And so I'm, I'm speaking for myself as, as, a, as a developer of, of new construction stuff. And so presuming I'm not going to write the entire check for all of the deal myself, I need to go raise additional equity. Other developers of new construction stuff are in the same boat competing with me for that equity, right? So there's a market for equity, I guess is my, is my point. And so to the extent that you can understand what is the clearing price in that market for equity, it gives you a target value that you're essentially trying to solve to. The market, the market clearing price for equity changes depending on depending on the, the, the month, depending on the year, depending on where we are in the cycle, right? That market clearing kind of hurdle return rate for equity changes depending on what's happening with interest rates, for example. But to the extent you have a strong footing and a good understand understanding of kind of what that market clearing price for equity is, you can build your deals so that they hit that market clearing price with margin of error or margin of safety, right? And so it's like, let's say, I don't know, let's say the market clearing pr price on you know new construction multi is a is an unlevered seven. It, it, at one point it was an unlevered seven, now it's less. You can customize, you can create a deal that you, I mean, you may do your initial model, Uriah, and you're saying, wow, man, this deal is like an unlevered eight. Oh my goodness, this deal is so so attractive. Let me go shop this thing and, and, and fund it immediately. And that's certainly one way to, to go about it. Or you can, if you know the market clearing return is an unlevered seven, you, you can adjust your model to show, you know, seven, two, five. And if somebody pushes back on your returns as being skinny, well, you have an ability to defend and justify an upside scenario that they may accept as a base case scenario, but you're presenting it in a conservative fashion. So that's kind of how I think about it. But it starts with understanding what that market clearing price is. Because if the market clearing price is seven and you show six, you don't get a second meet. All right. Sounds good. Uriah? Yes, sir. Thank you. Great insight. Thank you. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for that. Appreciate your input. All right. So let, let's talk about that a little bit since that um, came up. How do you find out what the market clearing price is. I know how we go about it. How do you go about it in your marketplace? Uh, yeah, yeah. So for, for me, it's just kind of being in tune with, with your industry, you know, having relationships with peers and kind of being abreast of what's happening with deal flow, like what deals are actually transacting and closing with people that look like me, 
right? You know, it, you know, it's it's not really relevant to me what a, a low enterprise's capital structure looks like mm-hmm. because low is underwritten much differently than than I am as you know a smaller entity, mm-hmm. and so understanding how other firms that kind of look like us, similar profile, what type of capital structures they're they're actually performing with kind of informs what I think I can go and achieve. And so, you know, that has everything to do with, you know, attending the different um, events that are hosted around the country, whether they be, you know, ULI or what have you, kind of really keeping your ear to the pavement to understand what's happening in real time with transactions. How are banks looking at deals? How is equity looking at deals? And then teeing my deals up to be responsive uh, to the business that's, that is transacting. Yeah, yeah, good point. You know, that's always um, always the issue trying to trying to figure that out. But uh, that's part of your team as well. You know, having those people around you that know what's going on, and like you said, through ULI and other organizations, you can meet those people that can kind of give you uh, an idea of what the the pulse is in the marketplace. You know, as regards deals that have actually traded. So uh, it's a good point. Yeah, and it's it's also a network of peers that you that you trust, right? I mean, that goes back to relationships. Yep. I got folks who are further ahead of me in this process. Mm-hmm. I got folks that are kind of at the same similar place as I am and, and folks that are kind of coming up behind. But these are folks that I've been kind of meeting and knowing since I started my own career. So 20, 20 years, you know, you build that network of peers and, and you can kind of become a sounding board for one another. It's part of the support mechanism, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it varies from market to market as well. So you always got to know what's going on even that's right. in your local market. So that's a big, big point. So let me ask this, where, where do you want to take the company? You know, where, where would you like to see you guys at in, you know, 10 years from now, if you, you don't mind disclosing that? Yeah, man, it's like a really private and personal question, right? So um, I have a I have a business partner and we we kind of always arm wrestle about exactly that that question. You know, I don't know that we have a resolution yet. You know, there's a school of thought that says if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, um, you know, we can certainly stay at this similar scale and continue to do a lot of business for, you know, as long as we want. And, and then we can stop. Right? And that's certainly an option. I think we've, we've earned that right, quite frankly. And it, it is a real option before us. You know, for me personally, you know, my dream was always to build a tower in a major market. You know, I'm from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in downtown Chicago looking at the Sears Tower, looking at the John Hancock building, you know, looking at all these different skyline. And I do still believe that Chicago has the most beautiful skyline on the planet. And so we could debate that. Maybe. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll let that you know, go that by. Has- but you know i'm from new york man so you know we gotta i gotta give it back to you on that one i know i'm sure another one too that are kind of nice but um you know my my dream has always been to kind of go bigger to home and and also kind of expand the opportunity and the influence right man when you're able to create an, an, an organization and if it's able to kind of endure and sustain you have an opportunity to 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 let other folks benefit in it and that happens only if you scale it I don't, I don't know that we're resolved on the real answer, Joel, mm-hmm. but um, certainly there's more and more and more an opportunity that's presenting it to us, to ourselves. More and more opportunity is presenting to us. And so I'm, I'm really optimistic about the horizon. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. There's, um, 
a lot of opportunities like that. Uh, even like yourself, uh, growing up in the city, it was kind of the same thing, you know, looking at the buildings and saying, hey, you know, we got to we got to do this. But you always have that gap between what you really believe is reality and what you see, mainly because of the things we started this conversation with today. You know, where do you get $10 billion from as a down payment on a deal? You know, where do you how do you put that together? You know, yeah. And um, and it's a matter of learning that, knowing it. And like you said, building those relationships over time, the way you can pull that all together. So, yeah, it's, it's funny that you and I don't know if this is kind of what you're what you're saying, but I, I, I was on a different panel and um, a gentleman kind of asked me about this concept of audacity and, you know, how do how do how do you feel about kind of audacity? And, and, and to me, it, it resonated with at least the tenor of the comment you just made, which is folks limiting themselves right. and saying, I, I see so many hurdles. I see so many roadblocks. I see so much challenge and so much difficulty between me and where I want to go and potentially being discouraged from even even starting and you know my overwhelming my overwhelming position is that you know you got to embrace that audacious spirit and you cannot accept for an answer because people are going to say no you're probably going to get more no's than yeses but you you have to have some type of internal fuel within you that encourages you to achieve things that maybe you can't see clearly. It's got to come from a very, very real place because you will struggle and you will, you will sacrifice. You know, it's not always going to be as good as it looks when it's done, kind of like cracking eggs to make an omelet. But you can get there, right? I mean, that's what entrepreneurship is. Entrepreneurship is visualizing something that is not there and manifesting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, I think that it starts with that. And I think as a community, we have to be more audacious. We have to be more risk-seeking responsibly. I'm not saying just bet the farm, but I think we have to embrace responsible risk-taking to achieve these visions and these big objectives that, that I know a lot of us hold. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a valid point. If, and, and if you don't have that fuel in your gut, you won't get out of bed every day and do this. You won't work past five o'clock and, and put the work in to make it happen. You got to have that internally and, and that belief system. And, you know, one thing that we ultimately are trying to create, even with this podcast, is to create that belief system. If you see more and more people that are in your peer group that are achieving these things, you start to believe you can do it, too. You know, and so that's that's really what this is all about, you know, trying to build that encouragement so that, um, you know, you can develop that fuel or, or put that fuel in your gut in order to make it happen. Yeah. And, and I, I believe it does happen. Right. I mean, if you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who who've done overwhelming, like, you know, I'm like a baby here. But um, there, there are folks who've done miles and miles and miles and miles more than, than, I, than I could even think about. But they didn't always know it was going to happen. Yeah. And I mean, the first day when we started our, our company, we literally opened up our bank account and said, all right, this is how much I have in the bank. This is how much it costs me to survive every month. Mm-hmm. You do a simple division and that gives you a date. Right. If by, <laughs> if, if, exactly. if, if, if by this date we don't have it figured out, then we're, we're on monster.com applying for gigs. Right. That's real life. When you make that leap, you don't necessarily know if you're going to if you're going to fly. You don't know if it's going to work out. But, you know, once you're kind of in the mix, once you're in that fire, you, you be, you'll be surprised how many problems you can solve. You'd be surprised. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised. If you put your mind to it, how many problems you can solve that you might not think you can. 
Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate you bringing that up. It's not always pretty. You know, yeah. a lot of times, you know, once you, <clears throat> if you step in and look in from the outside, it's like, oh, that beautiful building, this person built it. They have a great life. They don't know all of the blood, sweat, and tears that went into actually getting that building executed. So yeah. uh, that's, that's a valid point. But it's doable. I, but I think it is doable. Me, that's, yeah. To me, that's the conclusion. That's right. Like right. a lot of times, I think we look out there and we're like, oh, that just seems impossible. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and, and we don't, we don't give it, we don't give it the go, but I'm saying like, when, when you go for it, you will surprise yourself at what the, at the problems that you can solve. Yeah. I have surprised myself at the problems that I've been able to solve. And every successful entrepreneur I know has surprised themselves mm-hmm. with problems that they've been able to solve. They've been faced with some real big problems and they've solved them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just think you know, that's, that, that goes back to that audacious spirit and just kind of embracing embracing kind of creation doing something special yeah yeah and you've also got to believe that there's nobody out there smarter than you they may know more about a particular subject but that doesn't mean you can't learn it and in the right environment you can learn that and step to the next level so you know appreciate you sharing that um we've got five minutes left uh uriah had another question he said what are your book recommendations you can offer are there any books that jump out to you that you think are worth reading Oh, yeah. Uh, There's so many. The one like for real estate heads, the first thing I always say is the real estate game by Bill Corby. So I'm, I'm a Harvard guy. Right. Full disclosure. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like drink the Kool-Aid. But um, mm-hmm. Bill Corby wrote a book, The Real Estate Game. And it's it's just a fundamental overview of commercial real estate. I, I, I kind of recommend it to everybody, of, no matter what level. I think anybody, even if anybody of any level can get something of value out of that book. And I think if you read the whole thing and you really understand all of it, then you can, you can do some serious damage in this business. So that's one that I like. Um, another one is like a cheesy one. It was a man in full, which is about an Atlanta developer. I believe that was an old ULI book that I, that I liked more of a, more entertaining than education. We could share some principles, uh, but real estate games, mine, Bill Porvo. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. So we appreciate that. Um, if there's no other questions, it seems like everyone else has uh, quietly enjoyed the podcast today. You know, so that's good. As long as they've got value out of it, then that's fantastic. And uh, Eves, I know we'll be talking. So, you know, this is really for everybody else because we talk a lot more you know, <laughs> off the camera. So, um, you know, I know we'll continue to communicate and talk about uh, what we're doing and what you're doing and everything else. So we'll keep the dialogue going. But I certainly want to thank you for being a guest with us today on Mornings with Joel, the CRE podcast. And uh, we certainly look forward to uh, having you back as a guest in the future. We thank you so much for that. And to all of our guests, we want to thank you as well for being here as well. So thank you. God bless you, Joel. Thank you for having me. And um, it was a privilege to kind of be with you all this morning. Thank you. All right. Fantastic. Take care, everyone. Enjoy your week. Have a great one. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.